Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. And in fact, there's one thing to do with this book. Uh, <laughs> rather than buy it and feather his greedy little nest, do what I'm going to do right now. Take spare and chuck it where it belongs, in the bin. Everyone is sick of hearing about Britain's Prince Harry, are they? Well, the numbers don't lie. His memoir, Spare, is the fastest-selling non-fiction book ever. A leaked version last week meant much of the salacious details were already in the public domain. Frost nip. Frost nip on a delicate part of your anatomy. You're going to the North Pole. Thank you. And things got very cold. At what point did you realise there was a crisis at the South Pole? (laughs) But it's an incredibly moving read at times. It was reported that Mummy's hands were folded across her chest and between them was placed a photo of me and Willie. For all eternity, we'd be smiling at her in the darkness. And maybe it was this image, as the flag came off and the coffin descended to the bottom of the hole, that finally broke me. Has his candour managed to change anyone's mind? The public, the press, his father and brother? I'm Aideen Finnegan and this is In the News from the Irish Times. Today, what we've learned from Harry's memoir and how the world is reacting to it. Today we are joined by Irish Times columnist Finn McRedmond, who is based in London, and Laura Slattery, who is media columnist with the Irish Times. You're both very welcome to the podcast. It only came out on Tuesday. I'm still reading it. You guys are still reading it, but I think we've, between us, we've got a good chunk of it covered. And it is important to read the original text, right? Because we've been consuming the discourse around it through the lens of other media outlets for days now. Finn, what do you think of Harry? What do you think of the book? I think, firstly, the book is a good read. It's it's well written. It's written by this very talented ghostwriter. It's at points funny. Uh, it's at points very moving. Um, it's at points a confusing mix of the two. Mostly it's very sad. It tells a really tragic tale of a man who has a, a obsession with the press and is addicted to reading bad things about himself and his wife and believes the press killed his mother and is kind of hell-bent on a kind of revenge. It's a it's a tragic tale, really is the tragic tale. And I think it would be hard to read this book and come out of it without sympathy for Harry. We move on to thinking about Harry himself. I, I think, yes, he had a very tragic life. I think he thinks uh, he is much like his mother, who was this kind of kind, wonderful, warm, popular spirit. But he fails to also see that there's a lot of the things he doesn't like about his father in him too, which is a petulance, a kind of bitterness, a kind of sense that life is unfair, 
and life has been particularly unfair to him. And if Harry is trying to claw back his personhood from being a royal, he's done a very good job by showing us that he's messy and he's complicated and he's not the hero of this story. He's not the villain of the story either. What do you think, Laura? Was there any bit in the book that jumped out for you as being... um, Well, first of all, did you like the book? I mean, certainly what's coming across is, as Finn said... Um, the sadness of his childhood, uh, in, including the, the sense that he was never really that close to his brother, which I think is really interesting. It happened most often in the back seat. We started scuffling and soon were in a full scrap, rolling back and forth, trading blows. Pa swerved to the side of the road, shouted at Willie to get out. Me? Why me? Pa didn't feel the need to explain. Out. Willie turned to me, furious. He felt I got away with everything. He stepped out of the car. Stomped to the backup car with all the bodyguards, strapped himself in. Now and then, I peered out the back window. Behind us, I could just make out the future King of England plotting his revenge. I've read a lot of memoirs over the last couple of years and and people who were lonely in childhood for whatever reason, even when they have happy adult lives, you know, with uh, successful marriages and uh, brilliant children and all the rest of it, they, that that sense of loneliness that they felt as a child never really seems to leave them. It, it just stays with them their, their whole lives. And that's clearly um, a factor, I think, in, in Prince Harry's life and uh, that in the infatuation and the love that he, he feels for Meghan Markle is an attempt to fill, fill a void. But it's, it's, it can't, you can't blame him for that or criticise him for that. It's, it's hard not to have complete sympathy for him. Now, he also has a big critique of the media throughout the book. He uh, makes some very pointed comments about um, Rebecca Brooks, which is, of course, who is, of course, a key lieutenant of Rupert Murdoch. And there's a reason why this book is published by Penguin Random House and not by HarperCollins, which Murdoch owns. I would say that, you know, they clearly have invaded his privacy in the past. The, the sort of agreement to lay off and to reform um, certain uh, bad behaviour in, in, the, in the wake of uh, Princess Diana's death uh, didn't really last very long. And whilst Prince Harry is never, you know, going to be the perfect victim, you know, there's, it's possible to pick holes in his argument. I think that doesn't invalidate a, a, a lot of what he says. And I think a little bit more self-analysis on the part of the British press would be a good idea. I very much agree with that. I think when you say there that Harry is the perfect victim, Princess Diana is the perfect victim in retrospect now, you know, because she died so tragically. But of course, at the time, she was victim of a lot of vitriol as well. But even then, people will always say, oh, yes, but Princess Diana manipulated the press too. You know, she played the game. Well, I mean, she played the game because she was forced into the game uh, effectively, you know. And the idea that you, you have to completely lie back and take it in order for your 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 points to be heard doesn't really it, 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 there's something very uncomfortable about that I mean that phrase uh, fair game I mean you can expect to hear that a lot now in relation to Prince Harry Do you like him more or less or do you get it more or less after reading it because it is very important for people to go to the source themselves and make their own mind up we heard so many things when I heard about how he lost his virginity I was like why would he want that out there or you know all this stuff about frostbitten penises or what have you anyway <laughs> I do think the context is very important and the Taliban kill number, I think, is a very good illustration of that. And here is Harry speaking to 
Stephen Colbert in an interview about why he mentioned that. Without doubt, the most dangerous lie that they have told is that I somehow boasted about the number of people that I killed in Afghanistan. It's a lie. And hopefully, now that the book is out, people will be able to see the context. I made a choice to share it because having spent nearly two decades working with veterans, I think the most important thing is to be honest and be able to give space to others to be able to share their experiences without any shame. And my whole goal and my attempt with sharing that detail is to reduce the number of suicides. Does the context of that make more sense to you now than when we just got that little nuggish last week when it leaked? Yeah, for sure. He's right to say he wasn't boasting about killing 25 people. He was using that number as a way to signify the complexities of war and the moral conundrums that he found himself in being a member of the army. That's fine. Um, But I'm not sure if using his memoir as a way to, to deal with his own complicated feelings about a global war is appropriate, regardless of why he wanted to do it. It's, it's, not, it's not appropriate, certainly not likeable. It certainly not, doesn't warm anyone towards him. And I think in that clip, he says, you know, and the press have, have span it and it, to make it look like um, I was boasting and I wasn't. I can't believe the press would do this. I find that a little disingenuous. Of course, you know, the press would do that. Your whole thing is that the press does that. Your whole crusade is against the press for spinning things. Of course you knew if you put that in your book, the press would spin it. So he just, there's parts of this book and parts of the way he's going about it that mm, surely you knew better than that, Harry. That makes me struggle to like him while also feeling deep sympathy for him at the same time. Laura, you had a brilliant article in the Irish Times during the week about <laughs> how the likes of the Daily Mail are saying, oh, spare us, and then have a 17-page special on all the, the stuff they want him to spare them. Yeah, I mean, I think we've seen this over the years now. That's the pretty par-for-the-course uh, level of hypocrisy that we would see from the British tabloid press in particular. And, of course, they will say that Prince Harry is not shy of the odd hypocrisy himself. But it was really interesting, is I thought, you know, for multiple media institutions to say, we don't want to hear from you when all they've ever really done is want to hear from these people. And, you know, during the years when Prince Harry wasn't really saying very much at all, he was he was trying to lead as much of a private life as possible. You know, there was one newspaper group that's on record as hacking his phone. And officially, there's been a huge change of tune on the part of the British press. It's oh, spare us. Even back in November 2016, when he first announced his relationship with Meghan Markle and complained about some of the initial press coverage that she had received, which he felt was had sort of overtones of racism. The reaction was he shouldn't take on the press. You know, it was kind of almost just just don't even try and do it, which must be a very, very difficult thing to hear if you're somebody like him who's been born into this, this sense that you don't have any choice. There's no freedom there. And it's escalated to this point now where, you know, he has his memoir, best-selling memoir, probably going to be the biggest book of the year, 400,000 copies sold in the first week in the UK alone. 
These are incredible figures, huge media coverage. Harry and, and the press both seem to be feeding into each other and making this as big a sensation as it can possibly be. Finn, do you think that the the salient point that Harry is trying to raise about the backroom briefing? So I guess I'll start off by saying that the accusation is you rail against invasion of privacy. And here you are invading the privacy of your family. I've heard the phrase throw under the bus an awful lot. And his main point is that they have been doing this forever, but not putting their name to it. They say when you see articles appear in the rota of the six newspapers in England that are given this access to the palace, that it always has a palace source. And the palace source could be Charles and Camilla. But it is done without any of their fingerprints all over it. I'm surprised that more people aren't concerned by that or thinking more about that. I think this is really a question about what the, uh, quite a big question about how the monarchy works. And the, you know, the, the monarchy needs um, compliance from the public. The monarchy needs to be supported by the public and it needs to be seen by the public. Therefore, the monarchy needs the press to exist. The press obviously knows they sell newspapers with, you know, beautiful Meghan on the front and, you know, Patulant Harry or whatever. So that relationship is extremely important. I think when it comes to backroom briefings and who's telling who what and which journalists actually are in the know and which ones aren't, I guess that's important to the royal family and the newspapers. But to the general public, I don't think it's a particularly compelling question for Harry to constantly relitigate and constantly re-excavate and say, you read this story, but it actually came from here. The process of journalism isn't what uh, interests people in the monarchy uh, and it's not where the monarchy gets its support from. I think the secondary point was really interesting that you picked up on at the beginning, which was saying, you know, Harry claimed to be very damaged by all of these backroom briefings, but now look, he's dragging his family through the mud. I think it's a fair criticism because if you listen to the pain and the damage that he claims the press caused to him, if it was so severe and felt so deeply that he had to leave his family and ruin, you know, cut off ties altogether, it's quite surprising to see that he's happy to do the same back. Um, and the reason why it's so surprising is not because it's a tit for tat. It's because the level of emotional pain that he said it caused him. Uh, it would either like lead me to believe that he's, you know, maybe exaggerating how bad it was for him or he is really so angry that he doesn't care about re-inflicting that damage back, I would say. It's a very dysfunctional family. And actually, I'd like to play you a clip of an example of how unfair he thought this was in his past and how I guess he's carried this into his future. In this editor's estimation, I was a drug addict. A what? Rather than telling the editor to call off the dogs, the palace was opting to play ball with her. But the guiding force behind this putrid strategy was the same spin doctor Pa and Camilla had recently hired. This spin doctor had decided that the best approach in this case would be to spin me. Right under the bus. A blaring front page headline, Harry's Drugs Shame. The story not only had me down as a habitual drug user, it had me recently going to rehab. Rehab? The editor had got her mitts on some photos of Marco and me paying a visit to a suburban rehab centre months earlier. A typical part of my princely charitable work. I felt sickened, horrified. I phoned Willie. I couldn't speak. He couldn't either. He 
he was sympathetic, and more. Raw deal, Harold. And yet, in the same breath, he assured me that there was nothing to be done. This was Pa. This was Camilla. This was raw life. I think that clip demonstrates why there has been such a fracture with William and Harry. Because imagine if your parents were briefing the press to make themselves look good at your expense. And you would say to your brother, we will never do that. And then that ultimately happens. I mean, he just wants a family that doesn't do that to each other. However, the public interest side of that is, you know, it's like their Vatican. And, you know, if we were exposing a cosy relationship between the press and the Vatican, that would be a matter of public interest that was really worth knowing. And he's pointing it out, but people don't seem to want to know about it. Now, beyond that... That would be destabilising for the monarchy if everyone had this discourse going, wait a second, they only plant or leak these stories to distract from the really bad stuff, the likes of the Prince Andrew scandal. Finn, why is that not cutting through? I feel like it's a glaringly obvious piece of this story. That Prince Harry is taking the heat away from Prince Andrew. That planting the stories, that having this consensual relationship with the press, we pay, you pose, is a way to keep the monarchy stable. Because if the press was doing its real job, which is to really look at what's going on, that would be destabilising for the monarchy. But we can't necessarily assume that the press writ large is not doing its real job. You know, the press covered Prince Andrew extensively and it continues to talk about Prince Andrew. Prince Andrew's mentioned in plenty of these reviews about Prince Harry. The reason why the attention has been taken away from Prince Andrew, there's one person responsible for that, and that's Prince Harry. He he is choosing to do this. He is choosing to whip up a media storm. This is voluntary on his part. I think it's a slightly uh, mistaken assumption that the British press is failing in its duty of care to cover serious stories uh, that are going on in the the news just because they also want to talk about Prince Harry. And Prince Harry is a really important story. Sure, it's a really entertaining one. It's kind of fun and scandalous at points, very tragic and very moving at others. But, you know, the the monarchy is incredibly important to the fabric of British society. The, The extent to which it infiltrates the architecture of everyone's lives cannot be overstated. Well, people aren't active royalists, but they're not, not many of them are Republicans either. We saw this when the Queen died and that kind of pilgrimage to see her lying in state. The, the feeling runs deep and quietly for the monarchy. And now a former member of it seems hell-bent on destroying that. That's serious, you know? And another important story, just to come in on on that point, is the entire finances of the royal family. And The Guardian has done a lot of work on this, investigative work, just on the actual extent of their wealth, um, some of which is hidden. There's a kind of a practice of putting a seal on certain wills so that we don't know, you know, what's going through um, the inheritance. We know they don't pay tax on that inheritance. Um, but there's a there's a vast uh, tract of land owned, including you know huge. It's not just palaces and uh, estates. Um, there's a lot of you know hugely lucrative uh, retail properties in London. You know, including like the Apple Store on on Regent Street, and basically all of Regent Street is owned by the Crown. And uh, the Guardian has come up against a lot of brick walls uh, when it comes to, to to getting the the information on that. And I think that's a very serious matter. I think it, it you know 
I don't think I don't imagine for one minute they're going to ease up on those kinds of investigations, you know, because they're also reviewing um, Prince Harry's book and um, doing a live blog on each episode of the Netflix documentary and all of that stuff. Things have changed now since the death of the Queen. And, you know, the other thing we're going to be seeing um, quite definitely in the years ahead is more countries leaving the Commonwealth and choosing to have their, their own head of state rather than um, keeping King Charles as theirs. So it, it's, it's a, there's a re- it is a really serious uh, situation, I think, at the moment, not just because of Prince Harry, but because of the death of the Queen. It was pointed out in the Harry and Meghan documentary that it was a bit of an own goal for the monarchy because at a time when you have members of the Commonwealth like Barbados, you know, leaving, that they could really have done with a woman of colour and, you know, a more modern looking face of the monarchy at that time. I suppose one of the things that I find interesting, Finn, is that you told me there is this vehement distaste in the UK or in Britain for this half in, half out uh, and that it's seen as massive hypocrisy. Maybe you might explain that. Yeah, I think the first thing is that the existence of the monarchy is a different system to what we have in Ireland, of course. It doesn't point to a weaker British democracy than anywhere else. It's just a, you know, particular system. And within that system, there are certain kind of beliefs and expectations uh, around how the members of this family behave. One of those might be whether this is good or bad uh, for someone's mental health is a kind of stoicism, a kind of, you know, don't explain yourself, keep quiet, you know, you're there to be stalwarts and level-headed and and symbols and you're not there to tell everyone how you feel all the time. That might sound kind of odd and slightly cruel, but there is definitely a sense that that is the expectation of uh, the royal family and perhaps a worthy trade-off for the immense privileges they receive in return. Therefore, there seems to be a little bit of a kind of culture clash going on here between the way that Harry is now really open. He wants to tell everyone everything and leave no details uh, unturned. That is kind of rubbing against the kind of cultural expectations of the monarchy. It's almost quite American in its nature, certainly very Californian, but it was always going to cause a reaction from British supporters of the monarchy. To be more nuanced about the hypocrisy is that he doesn't want privacy, he just wants to control the narrative. He wants he wants control while also being the centre of attention. Again, that's a pretty hard circle to square, you know? If you want to be the centre of attention, you're going to lose con- control of the media. They're, they're, the, the ball will spiral and people will start saying whatever they want. And the other one is, yes, this, you want to leave the royal family and live in Montecito, but you still want your children, you still think your children deserve their titles and you want to be these kind of great philanthropists with all the resources of a royal family, but you won't do any of the work of the actual royal family. That idea of there's no such thing as a free lunch is is what is driving a lot of the distaste towards Harry at the moment, I think. See, what I find interesting about his half in, half out is that the scrutiny he wants extends to just the relationship with the press. And he, you know, he still supports the monarchy. And he, you know, is somebody who goes around Africa and he has kind of talked in the documentary about how, you know, British wealth was founded on the back of the slave trade. And so he speaks the language of social justice, but still inherently believes that there is a family 
with a God-given right sitting on top. I find that a very big contradiction. It'll be interesting to see if he evolves that position over the decades to come. I mean, it's very difficult for somebody to really shake off, um, you know, the attitudes that, and the beliefs that they've grown up with. And he has shaken off a lot of them. But yeah, he still believes in the system. And a part of them probably can't really en- en- envisage Britain without without a monarchy. Perhaps, you know, after a few decades of living in California, he, he will have a different view. And perhaps he perhaps he will, you know, fade into uh, obscurity as time goes on. There will always be that need to earn money. So he probably will be out and about. And as, as long as his marriage to Meghan Markle in, endures, um, she will certainly be front and centre of that uh, joint effort. It is There's probably a bit of an intergenerational conflict here too, in the sense that a lot of that stoicism dates back to a, a generation that didn't go to therapy and didn't make public disclosures on, on social media about how they were feeling. It, but it, but it's not entirely new, though, what he's doing either. Because, I mean, I remember the week after uh, Princess Diana's uh, death, um, you know, the, the newspapers took a very hostile view to the Queen and actually had a headline, show us you care. They they didn't like her just retreating um, to her country estate and saying nothing. So there was a there was a demand for emotion then and a feeling that, you know, emotion was the new currency. OK, we're all human. There's a lot of juicy stuff in here. Was there any story or anecdote that you guys liked in particular or made you go, oh, that's interesting? Well, there's a truth bomb on page 20 where he uh, correctly says that bagpipes can drive you mad. Um, As someone who's spent a bit of time in Edinburgh, I can confirm that bagpipes can definitely drive you mad. But uh, yeah, for some reason, that hasn't really been on the front pages. Finn, what do you think? There are some extended bits about elephants. He seems to really, really like elephants. I found that very endearing. Um, he writes about elephants with greater passion than I've written about anything, probably. Um, and Those are the boring bits. I think <laughs> readers can skip past that. That's the TLDR bit of the book. Yeah, um, I think, again, the story about losing his virginity or his genitals at his brother's wedding, I could have really done without. I thought some stories were more telling uh, about his character than perhaps he might have thought, such as, you know, annoyed that his uh, room was smaller than his brother's because, you know, he does neglect to mention that the room was still in a palace, you know. So there <laughs> are moments where you're a bit like, mm, maybe you should have thought that one through a bit better. But yeah, there are moments of great fun and great tragedy. It's a good it's a good book. Finn McRedmond and Laura Slattery, thank you very much for joining us. That's it for today. The clips you heard are from the audiobook of Spare, published by Penguin Random House, and The Late Show with Stephen Colbert. This episode was produced by me, Aideen Finnegan. In the news, we'll be back on Monday. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. 
What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan, crusted chicken, or garlic, butter, shrimp, scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. 